recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up. Turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. It is episode 56 already of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with Mr. Ewan Christie. Hello, Cameron. Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter. You can sign up for that at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend about it. And you can also follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and SoundCloud even as well. Lots of options, as well as our newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. Ewan, another week is here. What's happening? Not too much, Cameron, but the summer, it's just around the corner. We're in the 20s here, Cameron, and that would be centigrade, not uh, Fahrenheit for uh, our friends to the south. So what's the difference between centigrade and Celsius? Um, <laughs> good question. What is I, the difference between I centigrade no and Celsius? I have no idea, but yet I hear Celsius usually, but you just use centigrade, which I know is also a term, but I honestly don't know the difference. And I've always wondered what the difference was, or even if there is a difference. Well, I hope there isn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if 20 degrees centigrade is actually, say, 30 degrees Celsius. Um, well... Wow. I, uh, well, I don't know, Cam. You may have caught me out here well, right off the top. I don't um, know either. With and my I, pants down. I'm sure there are some people listening to this hitting their, I was going to say radio, but no one listens to a radio anymore, hitting their machine. But regardless, we're you're a few months behind us here in Hong Kong, Ewan, because we were in the 20s back in January and February. Now we're well into the 30s. Uh, I think we hit 33, 34 degrees over the weekend. It's just insanely hot here now. And it's basically the opposite of Canada and the US, I think. Like in the winter is patio weather. That's when we go outside. That's when you can sit comfortably. That's when you can walk to work. Summertime's too hot. And uh, it's, yeah, people stay indoors. Well, I, you know, again, Cam, I know um, talking about the weather is a, is a Canadian yeah, favorite Canadian pastime. But this last weekend, it really was the first weekend we've had of just glorious, warm sunshine. And I was sitting out on the front porch with my wife and with my daughter, and it just... I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's if it's a product of having been locked locked up locked in for so long but everybody just seemed to be out and enjoying the sun our neighbors were out we were chatting with our neighbors as well and just that sun kind of coming down on your face with a nice cold drink it felt it felt glorious it felt like a like a an awakening and um you know it was so it was just so pleasant i i was thinking the same like i mean i know yeah everyone talks about summer everybody knows what summer is yes there's sunshine blah 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 but it really does feel liberating especially in those first week or two you know where the weather's warmed up and you're feeling good and and even here like we're in a building with uh, an outdoor swimming pool which is many floors below but it's outside my window in this sort of home studio and you know like over the weekend I'm hearing people splashing in the pool like your kids running around and it feels like you're on a holiday in a way like it just feels like summer all the windows are open uh yeah I just I love it it does uh, it does wonders for the psyche Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right. What have you got on deck this week, Ewan? Cam, I'm talking about a fantastic, fantastic article I read in the Harvard Business Review. And, and this came to my attention because there were a number of employment lawyers from multiple jurisdictions that were, were tweeting this out. It was all over the socials, mm -hmm. um, again, in sort of legal circles. But I thought it was just such a great article um, in terms of all of the issues we discuss on this show, be it from a, a PR perspective, communications, employment law, HR, that I wanted to sort of go through the four sort of 
main bullet points that they tackle in this article. I think it's so helpful for employers and employees alike uh, that sure. I, I wanted to sort of dive into this. Yeah. What's it about? Um, yeah. So the, the title of the article was how men can be more inclusive leaders. And while, you know, sort of the article was was specifically looking at kind of older, old school businesses that are still very sort of male dominated from the top down. I don't even think that this, it, you know, really applies exclusively to male led companies. I think it's just fantastic points and suggestions for building your business and making it more competitive and more inclusive. Well, we know better integrated. We know that the vast majority of companies are male led. So I'm sure this does apply to a lot. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, I I thought this was sort of a a great example of um, there's three authors of the article. So we've got David G. Smith and W. Brad Johnson. They're both professors at the U.S. Naval War College, interestingly. One's a professor of sociology and another's a professor of psychology. And then um, also uh, Alison Stromberg, who is an instructor at Stanford University. So, you know, sort of an interesting perspective in tackling these issues. So what's their advice? Yeah. Well, yeah. So, you know, a lot of they're talking about really how the pandemic has resulted in kind of issues we've talked about before the employee activism, rise of employee activism, the changing role of the corporation and just sort of the fundamental shift in the workplace that we've seen over the course of the pandemic. And, you know, a large Part of that cam has been a result of a demographic shift in the workplace. So, you know, today's talent pool, it's increasingly diverse. It's dominated by millennials who are now actually cam statistically the largest full time workforce generation. And then also with the incoming Gen Zers. And that's resulted in a more racially and ethnic, ethnically diverse Mm-hmm. workforce, particularly compared with the the boomer and Gen X generation. Yeah. And, and millennials, the, like the oldest millennials are like 40 years old now, right? Like they're, they're, they've been around a while. Yeah, absolutely. They're buying houses. Well, and also, I mean, and also the majority of college educated workers are now women. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so we, we, we've certainly seen a shift and with that shift, we've seen a work you know, sort of a shift in work priorities as well, right? There's more emphasis placed on work-life balance. Workers are wanting to spend more time with their families. They're more interested in remote work. All of these sorts of issues have really left a lot of old school businesses in the lurch in terms of how to address these problems. So sorry, the let me first sort of cut you off rudely just for a sec. I, you know, I'm glad that you brought this up. So before you get into these, um, these p- bits of advice, I, I actually think it's worth everybody listening to, to take a second here, because I think a lot of managers and companies around the world, like this isn't North America specific, are seeing the same changes that you're talking about. They're seeing the differing expectations among their their staff. I mean, we've talked about this on this podcast. We were talking about Basecamp, for instance, a couple episodes ago, about what employees expect. And I do think that a lot of the senior managers are out of their element. They're not even sure. They know that they have to do something, but they don't even know where to start. So I assume this is where you're going to take us with this advice. Well, it is, Cameron. You're right. Awesome. Premonition. <laughs> good, good, good lead. Good lead. So the, the, the first the first tip from this article is get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes, I've heard so that the before. The idea mm-hmm. of embracing risk being key to successful, inclusive leadership. You know, if you're comfortable as a leader and as a business, it's likely that your employees and your company are not being challenged in a way that's going to ensure the business continues to grow. Right. Yeah. And I think this really comes down to that old adage cam of adapt or die. Right. Mm -hmm. And the, the idea sort of of a diverse workforce, you know, historically this has sort of been considered almost like a suggestive bonus. And, you know, this article points out that today's leaders, you know, they're not thinking that way. The ones that are forward thinking, they understand that sort of full inclusion of women needs to be sort of a fundamental tenant 
of their leadership brand. And they sort of offer a really compelling piece of, of evidence in this regard. Um, they talk about how leaders who truly believe in the value proposition of diversity, inclusion, and the core tenets of, of, of allyship, they're actually 62% more likely to occupy C-suite positions, Cam. So really, there's a fundamental correlation between adapting and integrating a more diverse and inclusive workforce and your ability to sort of rise to to the top in in executive roles. Yeah. And I, I just want to add on that just about the get comfortable being uncomfortable thing. And I think I've we've maybe talked about this, you and at other times, even earlier in life, but being uncomfortable and and feeling a bit like maybe you're struggling to stay above water, those are scary moments. And I think when change is coming, it's a scary moment to a lot of people. Like I think the vast majority of people are very nervous about change. But when I look back at my own life or, or talking to other people, it's those moments when they're uncomfortable or they are struggling a bit that become the most rewarding because it is when you learn, it is when you pick up new skills, new experience that can help you grow as a person. And I think, you know, this applies in the context that you're talking about as well inside the workplace and, you know, beginning to embrace things that you're not comfortable with, but knowing that it's something that you, you have to get comfortable with. And I think it's it's good for what you're talking about. And I think it's good just in general for people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and to your earlier point about the disconnect that we're still seeing at a, large, at a lot of large companies between sort of CEOs and executives at the top and the everyday workers of the companies, right? Where there's just that that cultural disconnect, that mental disconnect in terms of what the workplace is supposed to look like. And again, it's sort of easy to talk about, well, we should do these things. We should get comfortable being uncomfortable. What does that actually mean? How do you accomplish mm. it? I think, again, this goes back like so many workplace issues, Cam, to communication, right? And it has to be mandated from the top down. So you have to create workplace policies and hiring practices that will actually attract a more diverse workforce and develop that workplace culture that's going to nurture and promote more diversity and inclusion. So if you're going to do that, great, fantastic. But, you know, work with your staff, work with your HR departments, work with your employment lawyers so you can discuss effective strategies to actually get this done. You know, businesses really have to take a top down and across the board approach in, in addressing these issues. And sustaining it, because I, I know even in the past uh, decade plus, I think there's been a realization that diversity is generally good. And there is evidence that, that diversity in the boardroom, for instance, leads to um, typically higher higher you know financial results or better financial results of the company. So, I mean, that, that has been clear for a while. But I do feel like a lot of companies have made announcements or they've put up nice sections of their website or they speak at events where they talk about these things, but they're not doing much on the ground in terms of the hard work that needs to get done. And I think there was kind of a pass given for a long time for these companies because it was kind of a, it's a new emphasis. It's a relatively new idea in the corporate space, but we're past that now. And we, when we talk about, you know, different demographics with different expectations, millennials for sure, and Gen Z probably even more so, they do expect to see their companies doing the hard work on the ground and to see how it's succeeding or failing and to be able to measure it. So for sure, it's got to be top down, uh, you know, from, from the beginning, but it also has to get that top level support throughout well, Cam, once again, <laughs> great segue into oh, the second okay. <laughs> the second point, which is make it personal and visible, right? So that yep. these messages, they need to be personal and authentic. And we've talked about this in the context, Cam, of sort of those vapid, empty corporate rhetoric statements we we've seen in the emergence of the black lives matter movement right it's all well and good to sort of tweet out aspirational sentiments but if the employers don't support the message or you know lack an authentic narrative for introducing um these statements in the first place inevitably it's just going to fall flat right so you have to be inclusive and again you got to consult with your employees in your hr departments <clears throat> in getting this done um and, and again, and I also want to say that doesn't mean that you sit down with sort of your, your token 
BIPOC employee to talk about their experience at the company during the next business meeting. You know, this sort of tokenism, it's currently running amok at a lot of businesses and it's really not the solution. It also means being visible as a leader and actually showing up. So, you know, one example, Cam, that the, the article touches on is Brian Olsavsky, the CFO at Amazon. And, you know, Amazon recently sponsored a leanin.org event, which sort of supports women, women's mm-hmm. issues and, and women in the workforce. Mm-hmm. And Olsavsky, he sent direct emails to a number of senior staffers explaining that he expected them to show up and fully engage at the event. You know, in other words, you know, words and policies are all well and good, but if the employees and the employer, if they're not showing up and being supportive of the message or supportive of the mandate, then it's going to fall flat and it's not going to be perceived as authentic. Yeah. And this is a challenge, obviously, right? I mean, these people are extremely busy and I bet if you talk to them individually, they would be fully supportive of this. But I think, you know, attending this kind of event or, or conference is kind of one of the easier things to kind of push aside or, or maybe you know, plan something later, not get to this one, whatever. Uh, But I think there's an emphasis being made that this is just as important as sort of the business aspects because it's directly related to it. So yeah, definitely something that I've seen sort of ramp up as well is that these are, these are not optional or just nice conversations or nice events to, to, to be part of. You're expected to be part of it and you're expected to participate. Yeah. And again, that sort of leads into the third one, Cam. You're it's, 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 we're just, this is great. I I swear I did not know these points before we're recording this so uh this is great it's just symbiosis fantastic so the third one design transparency into your workforce so you know a lack of transparency around gender pay gap for example companies recruitment practices promotion statistics uh paid parental leave for both men and women all of these things they create a lot of problems for businesses and they can also land employers in some some nasty discrimination lawsuits. The authors sort of argue not, you know, this can be really, really beneficial, not just for the company, but for external stakeholders. And they give the example of of 99 investors, different investors that represent more than 1.6 trillion in assets, Cam, that recently requested the companies increase public access to workplace equity policies and demographic info. And, and, you know, the argument here is that investors, they believe that these disclosures actually impact investing decisions and reduce risk to shareholders. You know, so it's not only going to reduce risk to shareholders, it's also likely going to go a long way in mitigating risk from an employment law perspective for the businesses for the businesses themselves. Yeah, the transparency thing is is good. And not just I mean, you're talking about it in the context of sort of these diversity sort of initiatives. But I, I think even in communications, we're, we're, we're seeing this a lot more. It's, it's not enough to come out and say that you support something, or this is your 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 value, or these are your values, without being able to articulate how you're putting that into action. And so it has to be transparent. There have to be sort of the steps that you're taking. And like you say, it's got to be measurable, all of this sort of thing for, for it to make, to make any sense. Yeah. And that goes into the last point, which is design accountability into your workplace. You know, one of the examples the authors offer here is Starbucks and uh, its recent decision to tie executive compensation to diversity metrics notably more women on boards. And, you know, this is something that a number of companies have already mandated uh, a, a quota of, of women on executive boards or board of directors. Uh, you know, other examples include companies like Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft who insist on diversity from their suppliers and refuse to work with businesses who don't. So, you know, in other words, businesses that are prepared to sort of put their money with where their mouths are And I think that's really the fundamental takeaway here, Cam, is that we can pay lip service to these issues and that's all well and good, but we're past that. We're kind of past that point now. And it goes back again, all the way to the beginning where we talked about that diversity quotas and I, and, and people like to use that word as some sort of, um, you know, sort of dirty woke 
policy platform of some, you know, crazed liberal executive running amok at a business. But we're we're past that. We're past that. And the reality is, is that the financial sustainability of a lot of large companies and now more medium size and more small companies are actually dependent upon a diverse and inclusive workspace and that it's good for the company's bottom line. Therefore, we need more and more businesses to sort of get on board with this and to really work inclusively within their businesses. And again, go back to that idea of it has to be an across the board thing. You got to work with your employees. You've got to work with your HR departments. Talk to your employment lawyers about how you can craft policies throughout the business that are more inclusive and can reflect that type of developing workplace culture to attract top candidates. Yeah. Which don't look like what top candidates looked like in the boomer age, right, Cam? Yeah. You know, I think this is probably the part of all of this that I find the most interesting and is probably the most significant. Because you just mentioned just now that this helps the bottom line. And actually, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we're expecting companies to make decisions that actually might not be as beneficial to the bottom line as other options. And I think one example here is use of contractors or vendors um, and in making sure that they are reaching some standard or some level of service or commitments to diversity or whatever it might be, uh, or environmental stewardship that, that aligns with your own values. And that vendor might actually be more expensive than another vendor who does the same work for you. And these are tough decisions to make. This was a, a hot topic in, in, in Davos last year at the World Economic Forum. Incidentally, the last time I ever was on an airplane coming back from there. But, but it was a very hot topic, the idea of stakeholder capitalism. And it, and, it, and it really is that companies need to start paying attention to so much more than their share price or their revenue targets. But, but this is a real fundamental shift in capitalism. I mean, it, it really can't be overstated how big of a deal this is because like diversity or hiring is one thing, but when you start kind of involving revenue, um, it, it, it's tough for companies to, to, to work that into their current business or their current policies. It takes time, but we are going down this path. We're seeing companies do this already. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, Goldman Sachs, for instance, set limits on companies that they will uh, help to IPO. Um, if they don't reach certain standards, they won't work with them. And that's passing up real business, you know, that could be lucrative uh, to them. So we, we are seeing this a lot more, and I think it's going to continue to progress. Um, and it's just another reminder of how much and how fundamentally that these expectations are changing. Yeah, you really, really nailed it there that this is an issue of finance and financial stability of businesses going forward. So we can talk about the political implications of this or where people might fall on that political spectrum or how they feel about this politically. That that ship has sailed so you can have your feelings about that and hey, fine. Um, but the reality is we're past it. And if you want to have a successful, profitable business that continues to grow long term, these are issues that you really need to address seriously. You need to sit down into your point. These are not solutions that are going to come about overnight. You need to work and you need to do a lot of work within your company to get to get this sort of change implemented across policies, across hiring practices, transparency in terms of pay gaps that need to continue to be closed. Um, all of these issues are very, very, very significant to the corporate bottom line. And frankly, hey, I think that's great. We're moving in the right direction on this. Let's let's keep the ball rolling. Yeah, and I think you know some of our listeners are small business owners or or work in smaller companies and and this applies to everyone. I mean, we talk about big corporations and kind of what they uh are are, are expected to do, but I think some of these things can be experimented with and kind of tested out, uh, even in very small businesses. It is kind of a culture or kind of an approach that your your business will take to consider these things, because every business is a part of a community somewhere. And, you know, that community's sustainability in a number of aspects 
helps that company. It helps that company recruit people because people can join there and put their kids in school or, you know, there's a good airport in that community, whatever it might be. And so I, I think there is this realization that there is more than, than just the bottom line. And it is sort of this sustainability factor. Bang on, Cam. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. You know, you and one of the things that... Um I'm kind of nerdy about in this uh, comms role that I have, and even in the past, is news monitoring, news and social media monitoring. It's an area that, I mean, I've worked in, my first communications job was in 2003, I think, 2002, anyways, around there. And I mean, at that time, we were doing news monitoring. We had a guy come into the office at like six in the morning and begin cutting newspapers and <laughs> finding stories online and compiling them so they could go to executives before like 8.30 in the morning. And it was kind of a long process. And it has changed a lot. And I mean, I, people in comms will know this, but for others, news monitoring is really core to any communications shop. Because so much comes out of the news. There's people mentioning your company. There's people criticizing your company. There's people praising, hopefully. There's opinions. There's sector news. Whatever sector that you're in, there's going to be things happening and evolutions and and, and new changes or updates to the sector and, and business climate. So it is really important uh, to track news monitoring. So today I kind of wanted to go into sort of where we're at with it and maybe some pieces of advice for sort of making the most out of the technology and services that we have available to do this. I mean, you and at your uh, firm, did you guys ever or have you ever done any sort of news monitoring or is it just, I, I know it's a law firm, which is a little bit different than say like a consumer goods company, but was it anything that you guys ever looked at? No, not really. I mean, monitoring the socials and again, sort of dealing with the, the legal community. That's sort of an easy thing to do. Hashtag law Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> And that's kind of the, the extent of it. But even that has been a very useful resource in terms of new cases that break, um, that establish new precedent. For sure. Stuff like that. But nothing, I mean, nothing like what I suspect you're going to dive into. Well, I mean, it is different, right, for for, for all companies. But I, I don't think there's a company out there that this would not apply to. I think the scale of monitoring would be very different. But I think even on your law firm, Ewan, which is growing. But I mean, even if there was a, a small letter to the editor where you were mentioned inadvertently or something like that, it's still good to know, even if you're not going to take any action or there's no sentiment, it's just good to know if people are saying things, right? Um, and that's really kind of what it boils down to, even even for, for small companies. But I guess like on, on a very big picture, there's so much news out there now. <laughs> like I... I talked about the guy who who came into work to do the the newspaper cutting years ago. I mean, now you've got like newspapers around the world have a reach that goes around the world. So, I mean, that's just newspapers, right? But we're talking tens of thousands uh, of newspapers in English um, that that might be relevant to to track and to monitor. And then you've got Twitter, and then you've got Facebook, and then you've got Instagram, and then you've got TikTok. Uh, you've got Twitter Reel, or sorry, Instagram Reels. Uh, you've got Reddit, which people have to, I mean, it's a massive amount of information out there. And I think that, especially in larger companies, this is overwhelming. If you sell something like a, a shampoo, for instance, I mean, people might be discussing that. If there's a, a quality control issue, people will post about that online. I mean, there are so many, there's so much out there, it's hard to track it. So, you know, I, I think the, the first step here that I want to mention is just really, I think the bedrock of news monitoring is going out there to find a, a very powerful service online that can help with this. And I think this does depend on, again, the scale of the company. So if it's a large corporation, I mean, you'd be looking at tools like Meltwater or Talkwalker, which are, are very big, very powerful news and social media monitoring tools um, that you can pay for on a monthly basis or via a vendor. And they will help sort of pull the, 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 the wheat from the chaff, as it were, in trying to get the most relevant material to you. Because comms departments are 
busy, right? Like they want to be doing announcements. They want to be reaching out to journalists. They want to be creating content. They don't want to spend the day reading through reams of news content, looking for something that's relevant. It's got to be distilled down, you know, really, really effectively for it to have any value. Now, what, how inclusive or sorry, inclusive, uh, I'm still back in the last segment. <laughs> I mean, what is the scope of one of these platforms can because again i have i have no experience dealing with this stuff when you say it pulls everything in i mean i'm i'm sort of envisioning some kind of screen full of charts and graphics <laughs> and what i mean what is not far what from does it that look like what's it pulling in it could it could pull in millions of mentions of your brand right i mean so for instance at the company i work at now tencent um it's not well known, that well known abroad as, as an actual corporate brand or corporate entity. But one of our products is WeChat, which is the social media app that's extremely popular in China and elsewhere in the world. And so, but WeChat is also used for, you know, online transactions or ordering a taxi or sending money to your friends or, you know, all of these, these things. So if I go into a news monitoring uh, platform and I do a search for WeChat, I mean, it's overwhelming, but a lot of it is completely irrelevant because it'll be somebody on eBay selling a pair of slippers and it'll say, contact me at my WeChat ID. And here's the number. And obviously I don't need to know that. That's a mention of WeChat that is irrelevant to what I'm trying to find. And this is, this applies to almost every brand. There's going to be something or somewhere that your brand keeps popping up. It's also uh, common with big brands that are in major stock indices and things like that, because there might be, you know, updates regularly mentioning your business and its stock price. So that would come up a lot that you might want to filter out. Um, it can it can really be overwhelming depending on on yeah the scope. But one way to deal with that, Ewan, is keywords. And you know this kind of drives me crazy because when I talk to people and even people in comms, when you say put keywords together, you know they might think of their CEO's name or their CFO's name, you know, the brand name, uh, you know, a couple of other related terms. But what people don't realize is you don't want to list a whole bunch of things. That's actually going to give you more and more content that's likely not relevant also. So for example, if your CEO is famous or, you know, is only known for his work at your company, then you probably don't need to put his name in there, his or her name in there. Because if you put the company's name in there, like when you think about it, would your CEO be mentioned without your company name in the article? It'd be very odd, right? Right. <laughs> so, so not necessary. Like this is, a, this is a process I think people do have to think through. So when you put your brand down, say what else might be out there that we're interested in that wouldn't mention our brand? Because our brand is already a keyword. It's going to get all of that, right? So actually, your, your keyword list should not be very long. You wouldn't, if you did sell shampoo again, you wouldn't put shampoo in as a keyword. You're, you might just get too much content. But your brand would be mentioned anytime shampoo is mentioned if they're talking about your product. So again, no need. So I think this is, this is a big one. And then understanding Boolean. You may have heard this term before, Ewan. It's been around forever. Oh, yes. Lawyers are very familiar with the Boolean search. It's how much of our legal research is conducted. Right. And it works fantastic for news searching as well. A lot of these products, I think even Google News, you can use Boolean searches to narrow down the content. And if you're not familiar with it, it's basically, I mean, maybe you can describe it, Ewan, but it's, it's basically just a, a, a format or a style of searching where you can use and or, you know, for terms or you can minus a term like if i wanted articles about 10 cent that didn't mention wechat i could type in 10 cent and then the minus symbol minus wechat or write not wechat and so then it will find yeah mentions of 10 cent but exclude any mentions that also have the term wechat so you can actually mix and match these these boolean sort of terms to to narrow your search down yeah that's that's exactly it it's almost like um it's almost like a like a computer code or a computer script, and it, a it's, simple one. It's rather intuitive, and but once you sort of get it down, it is such it's such an effective way to search for information as opposed to you know people typically typing in a full question or something into the Googles, which yeah. um, isn't really nearly as efficient as what you can accomplish with a Boolean search. You know, I, as an aside, I was actually thinking of recording a video at one point about just searching Google because I, I realized like most people don't know how to search Google because 
you would type in your question or you would type in your term, but you're not thinking about how a computer is interpreting that. Like if you type in a couple of terms, like it's going to look for all those terms together, right? But like, I think a lot of people want one term for sure, their brand name, and then maybe one of several other terms, maybe, you know, Tencent and WeChat or Tencent and Weixin or Tencent and PUBG Mobile, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and you can use that and or, and it really, really does help. And and not just at your work, not just for news monitoring, Booleans in everything. <laughs> like this will help everything in your life almost anytime you do a search and it will save you a lot of time and it will help you get to the results much faster. Agreed. Maybe that's the uh, takeaway of this episode, Cam, is go out and go <laughs> learn out. about Boolean learn searches, Boolean. everybody, for anyone who, who's hearing that that term for the first time. And it's simple, guys. Don't. It's not, I mean, you would mention computer code. It kind of looks like that, but it, it really is using English terms just to filter down it's not it's not difficult to learn the other one that i think is is big that people often overlook is rss and this stands for really simple syndication it was popular in the 90s i mean it's one of the most early internet technologies out there and i use it every day for hours a day um and most people just don't know about it it really amazes me um and basically rss is think of it almost like a wire service feed so if you go to the new york times for instance and you're on their website, you see all their articles on the homepage and whatever. And if you scroll down to the footer, usually it's in the footer or somewhere, there will be an RSS either menu item or the RSS logo. And what that means is, is you can copy that link. It's a link that's an RSS feed, but the link goes to the New York Times's RSS feed. You can then plug that link into your own feed reader, it's called. And these are free. Uh, there are some paid options uh, if you want really fancy services, but I think the free ones are fine. And what that means is, is you can pl- drop that link into your feed reader, and then it will track the New York Times. Anytime the New York Times publishes an article, it will appear in your reader. And so you say, well, why not just go to the New York Times website then? Why, why do I need to put it in my reader? Well, because you can put a lot of links into your reader. So... For mine, I've got the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Reuters, Nikkei, you know, Asia, the South China Morning Post. These RSS feeds from all of these publications, I put them all into a reader and I can see their stories all from the same screen. So as they scroll in, I can see everything right away in one spot. And this is quite powerful. And a lot of news organizations even provide sort of filtered feeds. So New York Times is great with this. A lot of other publications, if you just want to follow Nick Kristoff, say, for, you know, you want to, you don't want to miss one of his columns or Maureen Dowd or whoever, you can drop the link to Maureen Dowd's RSS feed, put that into your reader, and then it will update anytime Maureen Dowd has, has an article. Um, this is a just a fantastic way to skim the news quickly. Again, depending on the company um, that you're in, you would know which publications you want to track or which reporters follow you or write about you a lot uh, and plug those in just so you can kind of keep tabs on them. Yeah. Well, you know what, Cam, it's funny. I I use, or at least historically have used RSS. I haven't, uh, haven't been using it recently but i had no idea that that's actually what it's what the acronym was oh yeah at least it will see the page. you know um it was kind of popular uh in even in the early 2000s um up until google reader shut down and this was a big blow to the rss community because it was a free service by google it was the number one rss reader by a mile uh but they closed it down i think in 2009 and that was right around when Twitter was really gaining in popularity. And so a lot of it kind of moved over to Twitter. But just recently, in the last few years, it's really coming back as people get sort of sick of social media channels because there's so much sort of nonsense on there. And they just want to get the important stories, right? And they want to get it easily. So so RSS has been making a comeback. And along with it are some sort of new versions of it that are a lot more powerful, which is my next point. So I talked about you can add the New York Times RSS feed into your reader. Now you can filter these. So you can say, I want the New York Times, uh, but I only want it if it's something Maureen Dowd wrote and Nick Kristoff and somebody else, maybe. Or you only want to see the articles that have your company name in the headline or maybe in the body of the story or both. 
or maybe you want, you know, only stories that have your company in the headline and another term in the body. I mean, you can filter it down exactly how you want it to go. And basically when you do that, it creates a new feed for you, which is the filtered feed and you can use that. And there's also ways to combine feeds into one now. So again, if you've got, you know, 12 or 14 newspapers you're tracking, you can roll them all into one URL, one feed that you can drop into any reader at any time. Uh, and it will track all of that for you. So when you really start boiling this down, there's a lot of options. And again, this is all free. I mean, there's no, no charge for any of this. And then once you get those feeds, there's a lot you can do with them now. So, I mean, I said you can drop them into your RSS reader. You know, that's one option. There are now services where you can drop feeds into it and they will send you a daily email with all the updates. If you want to get it by email, you can post them on your website. You can embed feeds on your website if you want. You can put them into a mobile app. I mean, there's a million things that you can do with this information. And these options really weren't around before. Uh, there's one in particular, and I'll put links in, called Mailbrew. And I've shown this to a few people even in my office, and it's kind of blown them away. But, you know, if you go to the service, it'll say, like, we can connect to Twitter and Facebook and Reddit and Google News Alerts, whatever, and compile, you create a customized newsletter with whatever feeds of these that you want. So you could combine the New York Times RSS feed. You could put in a Twitter person who always talks about your business, throw their feed into the newsletter too. And maybe a Reddit thread or a Reddit, a subreddit that talks about your company. I mean, the, the possibilities are endless. And I don't mean to make this confusing because I'm worried I'm starting to sound a bit uh, techy here. But at the, at the base level, any Twitter account, any Twitter search any news organization, even any Google News Alert, which people use, all of those have related RSS feeds and you can put them somewhere and track them all from one place. And I think that's really the big takeaway. That's crazy. Kim, what, what's your take on Google Alerts? Because this is something that I've used in the past and I'm sure a lot of people are completely unaware of that you can effectively tell Google to alert you and send you an email whenever you know a particular individual posts an article, for example, you can search terms. I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on that? I, I think it's useful. I use it as well. Um, I, I think I think it's a good service. It might not catch everything, but I see why not why not use it? It's free. I mean it's one of those I mean, even in Google News searches, you can use Boolean, so you can filter it down. And you're right, once you have a search, like a Google News search that's set up the way that you like and the terms that you want, you can save that. And then, as you say, you can tell Google, now send me an email every time my company is mentioned. Or send me an email at 9 a.m. with all of the mentions, you know, from the previous day to, to 9 a.m. Or send four emails a day. or you, know, you can set it up however you like. And it is useful for tracking mentions. But again, to me, that's another thing I'm checking, right? Even if it's email, it's another another one. And any Google alert, Google news alert that you create, you can have it send an email or option two is create an RSS feed. So you can create that feed right out of your Google news alert and plug that into your RSS reader. And it functions the same way. If there's if Google news picks something up that matches your search, it'll just appear in your RSS reader. And so I use this for sure for the company that I work for now and for a lot of other other purposes, it's a good way to kind of track news in a general way because you're not really filtering by publication most of the time. It's just some keywords. And so, yeah, absolutely useful. Okay. So I, I get the the sense at least, because again, it's always sort of hard when you're sort of listening to somebody who's in the know about how yeah, these things sorry about work. that. <laughs> no, 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 not not I don't I don't mean in that in that respect. I just mean it in terms of how how accessible is this or how easy is this to sort of get set up from from the ground level for a you know a, a neophyte in 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 this area cam if you're and I'm, I'm thinking sort of if you're a small company you know five ten employees and you want to set something up like this on your you know your laptop that you use to do most of your business is this is this a difficult thing to do is it really straightforward or you know that it's a good question. I hate saying it's a good question, but it's not complicated at all, but it is still using 
uh, technology that most people are unfamiliar with. So I think there is still trepidation, maybe some nervousness. Actually, I notice with people I talk to a lot, oftentimes there's nervousness about approaching something like this just because people don't want to feel dumb. They don't want to ask a dumb question. They don't want to seem you know, not tech savvy. And sometimes that holds people back. But I think even if someone showed this to you or anybody one time, you go, oh, that's it? Okay, yeah, I can do that. No problem. Like, it's actually not difficult. Um, but I think a good place to start might actually be those Google News alerts. I think comms people would probably know this, or most would. Um, but just going to news.google.com, you know, that brings up Google News. And then you can type a search term in there, uh, and you can save that search. And at that time, you will give, have a choice of whether you want it just an email once a day or, you know, however you want it. That's a good place to start. And then an, another one I'll, I'll throw out there uh, is an RSS reader that I, I really like. It's called InoReader, I-N-O reader.com. Again, it's free. Uh, but once you log into the free account, there's a search bar there. And you can literally search for whatever you want, and it will give the feed to you. So you don't even have to go to a bunch of sites to find it. Um, They've got an excellent search, and you can begin building it that way. So it's really, really easy to get off the ground. If you want to start doing the filters and the combination of feeds, that's a bit more complicated. But I don't think it, that's necessary either. It's a nice perk. I think I would do it if you were really starting to rely on RSS. But I think for, at the beginning, it's it's not necessary at all. I think I okay. Would, well, and also for our listeners, um, you know. You can find Cam's socials yes. online. Yes. I Send actually think message. I actually think I will <laughs> record a quick a quick how to on this because it might be useful to see it. I think for for a lot of people. Well, yeah, and I find you know that's always sort of the issue with a lot of these tech products. It's 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 sort of what I envision in my head right. relative to what it actually is. Um, it's yeah. you know making a, a mountain out of a molehill. I'm sure it's a lot a lot easier than what I think it is that's such a good point you and you're right like like a lot of people get an image in their head of what this is and a lot of assumptions made actually i think on any subject people don't know that much about you you make a lot of assumptions that might not be might not be accurate but i mean if anyone does need help on this please reach out to me directly i'm happy to to help out um or at least show you the first time because it once you see it once uh, a little light will go off and i, I showed this even to my own team uh, at tencent a couple months ago um, because we're sort of beefing up the news monitoring side and, you know, my, my main media relations person, I kind of showed her how to do it and she's just taken off with it now. I checked out her I know reader the other day. She's got tons of stuff in there. She's starring articles. And, um, so it is cool. Like once you grasp it, you go, wow, this is a really powerful and really useful tool. But just to wrap up here quickly, Ewan, uh, the other things for a comms department to, to assess really is, you know, how often should you be getting these reports on news articles? Is it something that, you want emailed to you once a day? Is it something you want emailed to you or in your RSS feed every time your brand is mentioned? For big brands, obviously that's not really feasible because you'd be getting mentions every minute. But you can decide, you know, the frequency and sort of the context of, of how you can set this up. And then the last one is the audience too, right? I think, you know, if you're just doing, you know, news monitoring just for the comms team internally, you know, maybe you put a bit more in there or there's certain things that you want to track. But if you want to send a news update, say, to your executives or you want to put something on your website, you know, maybe you adjust what's in there or what you want to to share. So these are things to think about when kind of putting together the, the news monitoring framework for your company. And then lastly, there are, again, if we're going to go deeper, there's some relatively new services out there that are making insane use of big data. And when we talk about big data, like we mean everything sort of being tracked and measured. And, you know, they can look into trends over long periods of time. Um, you know, I had a meeting with, with Edelman a few weeks ago, and, you know, they've got a new product that's trying to anticipate which articles might become a crisis, which issues might become a crisis, and which probably won't. And how do you sort of predict that? Well, if you have enough data on enough, uh, you know, crises, you can begin to crunch that data and kind of reassign your resources based on, you know, what's likely to be a problem and save resources where it might not be a problem. So this is kind of next level stuff. Um, also things like identification of influencers. This is pretty common, 
but you know, get, getting an idea of you know which people on social media are talking about you the most. Like who who are people listening to? Who are the thought leaders in this space? And identifying them can be really really helpful because you can engage with them, you can talk to them, you can. You know, if they're in the same city as you, bring them into your office, get to meet them, right? Like they can be a huge asset um, when you want to get information out. So all of these things are good. And sorry, real lastly now, um, there are also services out there that are journalist databases. They're also very good. I mean, I, I think one, I forget the name, but one we're using is called Muckrack, which is also very common now. And it's great, Ewan, because I can say I, I'm... Again, I'm going to the New York Times, but if I look up Nicholas Kristoff, for instance, in Muckrack, it brings up his profile, it brings up his phone number, and all of his social media accounts. I can see his tweets, and I can see the, his articles there. Um, it's fully formed profiles uh, of these reporters that you deal with or news organizations, and they also enable really accurate tracking. So, you know, we get them, Muckrack sends us an email every day about the reporters that we're following. There's certain reporters that write about Tencent a lot or cover tech in general that we absolutely want to get a heads up when they publish something new. And so, you know, services like that are also very, very helpful. There's a lot out there. I've given you a lot of information. I know it might be overwhelming, but it's definitely worth kind of checking out and clicking around and just... Uh, it's, it's okay. You, you can't make any big mistakes on something like this. It's okay to click around and uh, kind of test it out for yourself. I'm glad you added that point because that's sort of the sheer terror. Yes. <laughs> oh, dear God, did I click on the wrong thing? What's going to happen now? <laughs> I will put links in the show notes to some help on this too. So we'll see. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa. Hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out. Check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR in Law podcast. All right, you and we're a bit short for time. What's up? What have you got? Well, Cam, I, I wanted to keep it uh, light and fluffy. Good. And uh, chat about a, a topic um, that's cheerful. Lovely. Yes. The or topic are you being sarcastic? Oh, okay. I just clued in. Yeah. Death. All right. <laughs> Let's go for it. Uh, yeah. Why? I mean, why not? Right. Uh, actually, this, this was a really interesting story I read in the New York Times. Uh, titled Meet the Nun Who Wants You to Remember You Will Die. Hmm. Um, it's a story about Sister Teresa Alethea. Uh, she's a member of the Daughters of St. Paul, and she is trying to resurrect, I guess, no, sorry, no pun intended, resurrect the practice of memento mori. And it's a Latin phrase. I hope I've pronounced that properly, which means remember your death. Mm -hmm. And the goal here, Cam, is to deliberately and consciously think about your own death each and every day in order to sort of help appreciate the present and to focus on the future. Yes. And? <laughs> <laughs> well, and that this this has become a rather popular issue um, so among her, her followers. Why is it a good She's, thing? Well, her so her argument, her argument is that, look, this is a reality for all of us. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, we we sort of put it off to the side and we tend not to think about it. And that in doing so, that can actually cause even more sort of stress and anxiety around the issue. She also talks about how um, re refers to death as something as a uh, sort of as a luxury or as an actual, um, you know, kind of th this this issue for us being fundamentally different than what it was many, many generations ago, where effectively, you know, your lifespan was half of what mm -hmm. it is now. And the the timing of your death you had a lot less control. We didn't have modern medicine that could, could kind of extend lifespan or could mitigate particular illnesses. You didn't have very much certainty around these issues. And we have a lot more certainty around these issues now, mm -hmm. such that we're not thinking about it the way that perhaps we once were. And she thinks that there's a lot of strength in terms of developing clearer focus and appreciation for, for the world around us and for our present. If, um, if we think about these things, 
I could not agree more. And, you know, I actually think about death a lot. I really do. And I have um, for many years. But I, it's not a it's not a dark or a negative thing. Like, it is good to think about your future in this way because hopefully it helps you make better use of your time, which is really the part that I find helpful because so many things we do in life uh, we just forget about because they're not important, but they're important in the moment. And, you know, I, I think back that I remember being, for instance, you know, very nervous about public speaking. I remember having made mistakes at work in the past where I was scared of what the fallout might be. But you know what? I can't remember an example. I have no idea. I've forgotten a long time ago. And yet in the moment, it was the biggest thing in my life. Right. And I think when you when you think about death a bit more, it helps to put a lot of that stuff into perspective. And and I think we're getting uh, better at it in North America. I think over here is a fully different story. <laughs> Let me tell you, uh, it's just even, you know, a succession for for tycoons or, or big business leaders here. It's something like we've got tycoons in their 80s and 90s that won't talk about the subject because it's just considered bad luck in, in China. So um, there's definitely a cultural uh, component to it as well. But I, for sure, I think it's valuable to, to, to consider that. Yeah, I completely agree. I, and I, I really love her her approach. If you can try and picture this cam. So she's a nun who keeps a, a large resin skull on her desk. Oh, wow. Has, That's extreme. Even has small skulls integrated into her rosary. She carries <laughs> around all as a reminder to try. And, and, and she has this this sort of exercise that she does where she spends a certain amount of time every single day consciously thinking about this issue. And, you know, it's very simple, right? That in sort of thinking about those darkest aspects of, of our reality, that we can find light and a sense of purpose and a sense of being and something to focus on today and, and tomorrow. Yeah. The skulls are, so there bit, you have it, Cam. those are a bit dark, but, um, rest of it, rest <laughs> of it, I'll, I'll take, um, what do you got? I, uh, I, there was a, a front page story in Bloomberg business week. Uh, people may have seen it on newsstands, uh, a laughing Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon. And it is an article, uh, titled how the untold story of how Jeff Bezos beat the tabloids. And if you can recall to, I believe it was a year ago now, uh, you know, he came out and wrote a medium article that put pressure on the national Enquirer regarding some sexting pics that they had, uh, of Jeff Bezos and the woman that he was seeing, who was also married at the time. Uh, his approach was very unorthodox. This is he basically did take on the National Enquirer here, and he just put everything out there in this medium post, and it kind of went away after that. And um, this is, a, it's a long form story about what was going on behind the scenes, how the photos were leaked, who did it, which I think is out there, uh, although I didn't know until I read this. Um, and how he handled it. And especially for communications people, I think there's all kinds of lessons in here. It really is. Um, it's one of those long form articles that once you start reading, you'll finish it. You, you can't put it down. Um, I think it's, it's, it's really, really enlightening. So link to that. Great. Yeah, I remember that. That was really, really crazy approach to take, but also just impressive, right? We're saying I will Very. not be dictated to by the National Enquirer. They will not determine my reality and my approach to these issues. I'm going to do it on my own terms, rightly or wrongly. I, I'm not going to talk about that more. Just go read it. You'll, you'll be glad you did. Anything else, Ewan? Anything else? Any messages? No, only uh, that uh, while you're talking, I did a quick search and determined that the Celsius and centigrade temperature scales are in fact the same scales. Okay. Cam. Then why do we have two words? <laughs> um, well, hey, I, I, couldn't tell you that and much. When you see when you see the temperature written like twenty six degrees with the degrees symbol and then C, does that mean centigrade or Celsius? Well, I think I think it means the same thing. The origin of Celsius comes from Anders Celsius, Cameron, oh, a, uh, a okay. professor of astronomy in right. Sweden, and he devised the temperature scale in seventeen forty one. Had a bit of an ego, um, I guess. Wanted to name uh, it after himself, maybe. 
I don't know why centigrade became Celsius. I guess that's sort of the explanation. Maybe he had a good PR team behind him that was uh, <laughs> was pushing the uh, the transition. Yeah. I don't know, Cam. Well, he's left quite a legacy, Mr. Celsius. Yeah. <laughs> good times. <laughs> Uh, anyway, thank you for joining us on episode 56. Yeah, already. Um, make sure to subscribe if you have been past this show from some other means. Open your podcast app of choice. Do a search for PR and Law and tap subscribe so you don't miss an episode in the future. You can also follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And you can subscribe to us on YouTube and SoundCloud if you'd like to listen that way. Lastly, our newsletter, of course, PRLawPodcast.club. You can sign up there. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word. P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. 